Well, good morning, and again, happy Mother's Day. Glad that you guys are with us. I'm glad that uh, we can spend this time together in the Word. Um, you know, as I just prayed just a second ago, really the goal is what we want, is we want to make sure that, you know, we position ourselves in such a place that the Lord can speak to our hearts. So a lot of that is just getting your mind ready for that, just ready to hear Him, letting the Holy Spirit do the work that He's going to do. So we will ask one more time just that the Lord bless that and uh, remove the distractions, whatever needs to happen, so that we can give this time to him and uh, let it minister to each one of us. So let's get in the prayer real quick for that. Father, again, we do thank you, Lord. Would you allow your word to do that word? I'm sorry, allow your word to do that work in each of our hearts. Uh, We're here before you, Lord, and we just pray that you would bless it. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to pick it up in Genesis 33. And if you remember last week, you know, we saw how sometimes God uses painful circumstances to forever change our identities in life. We had seen that really um, in Jacob's life, you know, when we talked about divine limps. You know, God doesn't do that, though, just to hurt us, but rather to permanently change us is the goal. When God allows some things in our lives, which maybe. You know, again, it it causes some hardship in our life, and it causes some things to go through that, you know, we would never sign up for, right? Nobody volunteers for that sign-up sheet. Everybody is just one of those places where we would prefer to have kind of smooth sailing and no problems at all. But as we see, and we see sometimes in Scripture, we saw last week in Jacob's life, sometimes God allows difficulties to happen because it's going to change our identity. It's going to change the way that we approach life. It's going to change the way that we approach Him. It's going to get us focused back in that place where we understand that there's a dependence that we need to have upon the Lord, and we have to submit to that dependence upon Him. And we have to learn to live our life maybe not so self-sufficient, which all of us are pretty good at that uh, prior to Christ. We're pretty self-sufficient beings. We were trained to be that way our entire life. But there comes a point where the Lord touches us in such a way that we realize, I can't do this without you, God. You're going to have to help me through this time. You're going to have to be the one who gives me my strength and the peace that I need desperately from you. So in Jacob's case, this really occurred when he spent the entire night wrestling with God. But it wasn't until the Lord touched him in that crippling way that Jacob stopped fighting against him. And he started to fight for his blessings. It was in his weakened state. It was in the place where where he felt insufficient, where he knew that he was not strong enough to do it on his own. At that moment, he started to wrestle with God, like I said, instead of trying to fight him and manipulate him and get him to do what he wanted, now he was fighting for his blessing. God, bless me. I need your blessing if we're going to do it. And again, in that weakened state, isn't that the way that we fight? You know, when you you can't fix things on your own, when you're struggling with things, you're just like, Lord, would you please... Help me. Would you please strengthen me? Would you please give me some direction? So the Lord did that, and his life was permanently changed. You would think from that moment on that that would be kind of like the highlight, and the rest of his life would be smooth sailing, and everything would be perfect execution, but that was not the case. Uh, Although he was becoming much closer to the man that God wanted him to be, just like you and I both, when we accept Christ and we surrender our life to him, it doesn't necessarily mean that we will have perfect execution as a believer. Uh, Oftentimes we still struggle. Oftentimes there's still some mistakes that are made, and we're going to see that he still has some struggles and still has some mistakes. 
But in chapter 33, we're going to see what happened as the moment came when Jacob would finally be reunited with his brother Esau. So in Genesis chapter 33, 1, it says, Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming towards him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two slave women. He put the slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. This is something I never paid attention to reading the Bible until I was preparing to study this. But it's interesting here. We already knew that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and the other two mothers of his other children. But here we see the first blatant act of favoritism occur. It was well before what we're going to read later where Joseph was given the coat of many colors. This was like the indication of how, of how Jacob already felt. And he was making it very well known to his whole family and everybody who was watching how he prioritized his family. Because he states them all in order so that his favorite son, Joseph, and his wife would be the last and least likely to incur any harm if Esau chose to attack them. But as for himself, it says that, verse 3, he himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Then they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he asked, Who are these with you? He answered, The children, of, the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the slaves and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down, and then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. Now, it's admirable that he at least placed himself in the most dangerous spot in front of his family. I appreciate that. You know, uh, there's, in a lot of situations nowadays, I, I'm always a little discouraged maybe how uh, men, uh, especially maybe supposed to be leaders of whatever it is, especially in their family or perhaps at their job or whatever, but a lot of times they... The mindset of placing themselves in the position of greatest harm has kind of gone away in a lot of cases. Um, and you see that sometimes play out in families where, where their own interests are, are placed at a higher level than maybe their own family. I've seen it to where it's destroyed families at times, even our little church. We've seen where times where, you know, again, certain hobbies that they just feel like they have to do and... You know, they place that above maybe some time that they should be spending with their family or whatever it is. There's just different things that happen. But oftentimes, I believe in our society, what we're seeing is where it used to be kind of common sense, what we thought was common sense, that the men would do whatever sacrificially they needed to do for their families. Uh, a lot of times that's kind of gone by the wayside now. And it's a shame. It's a shame because I believe that God has called us to that as men. You know, that we are, I know this is Mother's Day. I'm sorry about that message. Boy, I messed that one up, right? Just wait till you hear the Father's Day message. <laughs> okay, but, you know, when I look at this, it just stood out to me that even though Jacob's going to make a lot of mistakes here, the one thing that he did that I really admire is that even though he played favoritism and set up the children in order of what his you know, least favorite to the greatest was, he still went out first. And he went out and he put himself in the greatest harm. The position of greatest harm. And I think that's something that we can learn from. But contrary to what he expected when, uh, when he was going to meet his brother, who last time, as I had said, he knew that his brother had basically promised that he was going to kill him as soon as he had an opportunity to kill him for stealing the blessing. But it says that Esau ran to meet him, 
that he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Then he showed his overall delight at seeing all these women and children that were with him. So that he asked who they all were, Jacob said this, These are the children that God has graciously given your servant. And they all bowed down, every one of them, as a symbol of submission to him and respect. And they wanted to show that they were willing to do whatever it took to have reconciliation. Verse 8, it says, So Esau said, What do you mean by this whole procession that I met? To find favor with you, my lord, he answered. I have enough, my brother, Esau replied. Keep what you have. But Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor with you, take this gift from me, for indeed I have seen your face, and it is like seeing God's face, since you have accepted me. Please take my present that was brought to you, because God has been gracious to me, and I have everything I need. So Jacob urged him until he accepted. Now clearly both of these men were very wealthy by this time. Remember this is the first time they had come back together. Jacob left with nothing when he left. Had amassed this enormous wealth as he comes back. Esau had also amassed an enormous amount of wealth himself. But it's interesting that Jacob alone gives glory to God for all of his wealth and possessions. He says, this is the blessing that God has given me, these children. This is the blessing that God has given me. Where we have no indication whatsoever that Esau gave any credit to the Lord. And I I see that dynamic. Because, you know, in this life, believers and non-believers alike can gain riches, right? We all know some that are believers who are wealthy. We know some non-believers who are wealthy. I work in an industry where several of the men that I work with are, are great men. But they're not necessarily believers. Some are much wealthier than I am. Some are less wealthy. Uh, But I see that, you know, God doesn't just like share his blessings just with those who are committed to following him and doing everything they can, right? That's not the way it works. Sometimes in life, even those who maybe are not very good people are extremely wealthy. We see that. There's no pattern for that. That's just something that the Lord allows in different circumstances. But here's what I know. The way that you handle that wealth when it's given to you will determine the eternal rewards that you have. That's something that I can guarantee is going to take place. Because when the Lord does bless you with wealth and he does bless you, maybe you do have more money than you need or, you know, whatever it is, you have a responsibility according to the word of God. You know, that God expects us to use that money both to bless others, to to use it for his glory, for his kingdom, you actually are given more responsibility as you're given more wealth. You know, it's funny because as believers so many times, we want more wealth, right? We're like, we want more wealth. If I just had more money, things would be better in my life. That's, That's not necessarily the case. Sometimes as you gain more wealth, you really feel the pressure of having more wealth and the responsibility that you have to honor God with that wealth and to do the things that the Lord wants you to do. He gives you freely to enjoy it. That's what he wants you to do. But as a believer, you're not just entrusted with wealth for this life. You're entrusted with wealth, which will also end up being a reward for eternity. So it magnifies the wealth that the Lord has given you. That's the difference between a believer who's wealthy and a non-believer who's wealthy. We have the opportunity to receive the eternal rewards for how we were stewards of the wealth that God has given to us. Jacob gave the Lord the glory, and he understood that the wealth that he received was clearly from the Lord, as we saw in the previous chapters, where Esau has no indication that he understands that that wealth also came from the Lord. He's taking credit for himself. 
Verse 10, it's a little bit of controversy in that. I'm not going to dig too much into that, but I'll give you my opinion on this. You know where it says, but Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor with you, take this gift from me, for indeed I have seen your face, and it is like seeing God's face since you have accepted me. A lot of people get into arguments over this. Commentators will fight over it. I am not willing to do either. Here's what I will tell you my opinion is of this. Jacob just experienced forgiveness from God. He just experienced grace of God, undeserved favor. He saw how God had blessed him and how he, even as he lied, as he was leaving, we talked about that, he lied to Laban as he was going. Uh, even He didn't even know at this point that his wife, one of his wives, had stolen that idol and she hid it and all those things that was going on. He had received grace from God. And now as he's looking at his brother, who he fully expected to want to harm him or kill him and his family, and yet Esau shows up running to him, throwing his arms around him, kissing him, saying, you don't need to give me anything. There was this welcome that there was. He says, it's like I am seeing the same thing from you. The same type of reception. The grace that God had shown me, I see that in you. It's like looking into the face of God, not saying that he is God, but saying, I see those same characteristics. And, and that's something for us as a challenge, too, is can people say that of us? You know, do we rightly represent the Lord when it comes to these things? You know, are, are we the type of people that are quick to forgive? Are we the type of people that, you know, I remember prior to being born again, man, when I, when I held a grudge, I held a grudge. I kept it a long, long time. I would wait for the opportune moment to seek my revenge. It didn't matter if somebody was trying to make things right. I would, oftentimes when they tried to make it right, I would push them away because I wanted revenge more than I wanted reconciliation. Are you still like that since Christ? Or when people see you and you're in a situation where they're trying to make things right, maybe some things have changed in their life, and maybe, who knows, even God might have gotten a hold of their heart, and they're trying to make things right, do you come across as the same characteristics of God when it comes to gracious and forgiving? Or are you still kind of like that old man or that old woman? It's important that as Christians we represent Christ in those things. Uh, even if we struggle, and I, I don't want to minimize some hurts. There are some hurts that are maybe greater than some things that I have experienced. I don't want to minimize that. But the truth is, is that for every hurt, we are supposed to get to that place where with the strength of God, and that's the key right there, the strength and the enabling of Christ himself, we can forgive like that. And we can be those people. It'll only come through Christ through. And there's tremendous healing that happens in your heart, isn't it? Man, if we just broke off the rest of the service and we just talked about, give me an example of times where you finally forgave. What did you feel like? How did it feel? Anybody who's truly had to forgive somebody much for some great harm that they did, there was a release that took place. And it's, as it has been said many times, you're the one holding yourself in bondage. You're keeping yourself as a prisoner when, it's, when you're consumed by hatred and you're consumed by anger and you can't get past something that someone has done to you, it's not them losing sleep, it's you. It's not them that think of you, you know, every week and have those thoughts and just, you know, your insides are all torn up over it. It's not them, it's you. You're hurting yourself by holding on to those things. And I know that for some of us, you sit there and you hear that and you say, you don't understand because what I'm going through is much greater than anything you've ever experienced. And as I've just said, that may be true. I've gone through some things in my life too, just so you know. But here's what I do know. 
When you forgive someone, you set yourself free. It's no more self-inflicted wounds. You must experience that, and you must see that as, as a believer, that's what God wants us. He wants us to be the face of him when it comes to those things. So that when people say, how can you? You say, because of him. Look what he's done in my life. Look what he's forgiven me of. And he's given me the ability to forgive. Because prior to Christ, I was unable to forgive. Now I can, because I am forgiven. Verse 12, it says, Then Esau said, Let's move on, and I'll go ahead of you. Jacob replied, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and I have been nursing flocks and herds. If they are driven hard for one day, the whole herd will die. Let my Lord go ahead of his servant. I will continue on slowly at a pace suited to the livestock and the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, Let me leave some of my people with you. But he replied, Why do that? Please indulge me, my Lord. Now, on this map, I hope it shows up to where you can see. Boy, I hope you have really good vision. That was the best I could do. <laughs> but you'll notice, I'll just point them out. You'll see red dots there. Some of you will see numbers, but not very many of you. The northern section of this map that cannot be seen as those lines go up there, that was Haran. That's where he had spent the last 20 years, Jacob. And as he's coming down on the right side of that map, you see some areas where he's stopping. Now, the first place as he came down from Haran, and at this point in his travel was Penayel, which is right there. You'll see it on the right-hand side. You've got one dot at the top, which starts with an M, and then you've got Penayel right there, okay? That's where he stopped at this point. Now, clearly, Esau wanted Jacob to come with him to his home, which is in Seir. And you'll see that at the very bottom. You see that as it goes straight down, there's Seir. So what, what Esau wanted him to do, kind of split by the Dead Sea there, he wanted him to go from Peniel to Seir. He says, come and live with me here. The problem with that was God told him to go to Bethel. Now, Bethel, you'll see, was kind of towards the left there. If you go kind of follow those little swoops right there to the left, you'll see Sukkoth and then uh, Shechem, and then go down and you see Bethel. That's where God wanted him, was right in that area in Bethel. That's where God told him to go. But right when he came into a right relationship with his brother, his brother instantly says, come with me here, trying to get him to go a different route in life. Okay? Now, instead of representing his new identity, because if you remember, after he wrestled with God and after the Lord touched his hip, and, it, and remember, dislocated his hip, and he had that, that limp, that divine limp that took place in his life. From that moment on, he said, I, you were called Jacob. Remember, he asked him, what is your name? Now, remember, I talked about this last week. But what was the point of him asking him that if he already knew that? He knew who he was wrestling with. He was God. It wasn't like, oh, what was your name again? He knew his name. Why did he say, what is your name? Because he wanted Jacob to admit his identity was wrapped up in his name. He was a supplanter. He was a hill catcher. He was a deceiver. That's who he was prior to this point. Or I'm sorry, up to all that point in his life. That was his character, his inner man, how he operated in life. He says, what is your name? And then he says, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but now Israel. And remember, Israel's God fights. 
It's no longer you grabbing onto hills. It's no longer you deceiving people to try and manipulate things to make things happen. It's no longer you lying to people to get ahead. That's who you used to be before this. Now I fight for you. I am the one who will go to war for you. I will orchestrate the events that need to take place. You need to let me fight this war. And then he comes down on this journey, and the first person that he meets was the one that he was most afraid of, which was Esau. What did Jacob do to get Esau to look at him so favorably? Well, you're like, well, he sent the herds of animals, and there was 550 animals, and he sent them ahead of them, and, you know, in all the different groups, there was five different groups, and it just wore him down. I want to suggest to you something else happened. God fought for Jacob, or I should say Israel. God didn't destroy Esau. God changed Esau's heart towards Israel. See, and that's the weapons that that God has at his disposal. He doesn't have to just come down and smash and destroy to get things done. He has the ability to work on people's hearts. He has the ability to go before people who you think there is no chance that this person will ever be favorable to me. There's no chance this person will ever do something good for our church. They, they look at us as enemies. There's going to be all kinds of restrictions. There's going to be this and that. God who fights for us has the ability to touch hearts in ways that we cannot do. And he does it without our uh, even knowing what's going on. See, God was working on Esau's heart even though Jacob didn't know it. And the very first time that he was in a circumstance where he didn't know how it was going to go, after being renamed Israel, he learned that God had already fought that battle for him. To where he was just lavished with kindness in a situation that he thought he was going to be destroyed. But there was, there was a trap in that. The trap was Esau wanted to get him off course. I don't think that Esau was purposely trying to destroy him. I don't think he was he, I don't think he was aware that he was trying to get him off track. You know who was aware? Israel was aware. Jacob was aware. Jacob knew what God told him to do. He was supposed to go to Bethel. That's where he was supposed to be. But right away He was under attack, but a different kind of attack than he had ever experienced. See, before, when he was attacked, it was like, it was was obvious, right? God would just, the the person that would attack him, like Laban, he would do it in such ways that he knew he was under attack. This time, it's friendly fire. He's like, oh, everything's great, we're reunited, come and stay with me now. And had he done that, he would have ended up in the wrong place. Now, like I said, he definitely was closer to the Lord than he had ever been at this point. But he still was far from perfect. And instead of just telling his brother, brother, I cannot go with you there because God has told me I'm supposed to go over there to that southwest region. I'm supposed to take a a direct line from Peniel to, to Bethel. I should have a straight shot right there. That's where I'm supposed to be going. He didn't say that. Instead, he begins to lie and he begins to make up excuses as to why he couldn't make that journey with Esau and his servants. And then he kept on telling them, I will meet you there. 
He says, no, 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 the, the animals and the children are so tired from this journey that if we go at your pace, it'll kill them. We cannot do that. You don't understand the harm they're going to get, you know, that they're going to face if we do that. So you guys go on ahead. We'll meet you there. He's like, great. Esau's like, great, no problem. So you don't get lost. I'll leave some of my servants here and they will come with you to protect you and to make sure you get there safely. He says, no, 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 no. Just indulge me, Lord. You guys just go ahead. You guys just do what you're going to do. We will meet you there. We'll get there at our own pace. Maybe, you know, another week or two, but we'll make it there. Just go on ahead without us. Just leave us alone. We got this. Was that honest? Not at all. Why did he do that, though? Well, maybe some of us can answer that. Because I bet all of us have made that same mistake as a believer. We don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. We don't want to create conflict. If we're honest, we don't know how it's going to go down. So we make up excuses and we lie. I can see how Jacob did the same thing. I'm guilty of it. I've done it. And I bet some of you guys have too, if not all of us, right? We felt like we had to. Instead of, especially as a new believer, where you're starting to finally get your footing as a believer, man, to stand in the presence of a non-believer who was close to you and to tell them the truth, I can't do that because God tells me not to do it, that is a very hard thing to do. It's hard to stand before your peers and say, I can't do this. Because this is what God wants me to do. Just recently, my daughter, and I won't go into details, but she was in a situation like that. You know, it's hard as a parent and you start seeing your kids grow up into adults um, and they have to start making adult decisions. And you see them in situations where that peer pressure to do the wrong thing, but you can't, you know, you'll get there one day, trust me, you two. You'll get to that point where it's like, you used to be able to say, no, you won't. That changes at a point in life where it's, no, you shouldn't. But you have to make that choice. And that's a hard thing to do. And all you can do is pray for your kids to make the right choice at that point. That they make the right choice so that they don't have to go through some of the consequences that you know because you probably experienced those consequences. But it's hard when you're in a circumstance where you have to tell someone, I can't because of who I am in Christ. I can't go into that circumstance. I can't do that thing because of who I am in Christ. It's a very intimidating thing to do, to be in a situation to be in. But it's a very necessary thing to be able to do, to speak that in love to someone else. Clearly, he had no intention of going down to Sierra. So you see in verse 16, it says, That day, Esau, that day, notice, that day, Esau started on his way back to Sierra, but Jacob went to Succoth. He built a house for himself and shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sogoth. After Jacob came from Badamaran, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Amor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. So you see... He was there in Penael. He stopped first. Instead of going right to Bethlehem, he stops at Succoth, which is right to the left of that. You see it right there, just slightly above it. 
He stops there. And not only does he stop there, he builds a dwelling. He starts building a house and rooms and, and you know barns and stuff for his livestock. He's like laying down a foundation there. And then he goes on to Shechem, which, again, where was he trying to get? He was trying to get to Bethel. Notice, further south. But he goes further north. He goes a little bit higher, and he goes a little bit further out. So now he's all the way in that corner right there. And it says that at that time, when he did it, he purchased a section of the field where he pitched his tent from the sons of Hamar for 100 pieces of silver. And he set up an altar there, and he called it God, the God of Israel. So not only did he lie to Esau, he had no intention of going there. He was going the opposite direction. But he also disobeyed God. God told him to go there. That's what he was supposed to do, but he did not do it. He was never supposed to build him a house in Sagoth. He was never supposed to settle in Shechem. But that's where he chose to buy some land and make his own dwelling among those people for a time within that pagan community. This was not a God-fearing community. He decided, this is where I'm going to make my home. Now, based on the last verse of that chapter where it says, and he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. In other, like New King James, it says, El Elohi Israel. That's what that means in this translation there. If, if you just finish reading that, it sounds like, wow, what a godly ending. He moves into town. He sets up an altar. He names it after his God. I mean, wow, he's like publicly making sure that people know he is a believer. He's under God's authority. He even uses Israel. He doesn't use, he doesn't use Jacob. He says he's not just the God, but he's the God of Israel. That's his new identity, right? And remember, he's going into a foreign land. He's saying, he's the God. I'm setting up this altar. I'm setting up to a God or the God, the God who fights for me. He's like putting these people on notice when he sets us up. And you look at that and it's like, Wow, that's bold, man. That is bold to go into a new community filled with all kinds of other beliefs and worshiping false gods and idols and all the things that they did and setting up this altar and boldly proclaiming that. But that doesn't always turn out to be exactly what it's supposed to be. See, like a lot of us, Sometimes we can make a grand statement by building an altar and naming it something magnificent in front of everyone. But when you set it up in the midst of a place you should have never been, it's a mistake. See, the problem was, it was a real altar, but he set it up in the wrong place. Just like so many. You know, maybe they proclaim that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. Yet while they live their life in places and lifestyles that God doesn't want for them. They're saved. They, they've had the name change. They went from who you were to who you are now. They went from Jacob to Israel. And he says, I called you out of this and I want you to be this. As a believer, you went from not knowing the Lord and being lost and being on your way to hell to being born again and saved. You're a new creation in Christ. You're no longer that person you used to be. But you, you, you say you experienced that, and maybe you did, but you went right back to the place you should have never been, and you set up, you know, that's going to be your official residence. This is where I'm going to live in life. 
This is going to be my lifestyle. This is what I'm going to do. But don't worry. On my Facebook page, I'm going to put up like a Jesus meme, you know? It's going to be on there. There's going to be some like verses I'm going to throw out on Facebook or, you know, TikTok or whatever it is. I'm going to have a Jesus shirt. You know, I'm, I'm going to show up to church. I'm going to tell everyone I'm a Christian now. But you set up your life to live in the world. So you make a grandiose statement with some of the things you say. You set up the altar, but you set it up in the wrong place. You're trying to live in the middle of a heathen community. And I'm going to clarify that here in just a minute, because there's a balance to that. In this case, God told him to go from there to Bethel. That's where he was supposed to go. That's where he was supposed to build the altar, or at least get back to the altar, because he had been there before. But instead, he tried to do it a different way. Here's what I've learned. When, when you go to Shechem, when you're living that kind of way where, where you're trying to be, you're making a statement about your faith, you're making sure people know that you're a believer, but you're living right in the midst of their own lifestyle, like you're, you're right there with them, you're going toe to toe. If there's things that they're doing that you know are wrong, say it's ungodly, you're going to go to the bars, you're going to go, you know, whatever it is. You're going to, the way that you speak, the way that you act, the way that you conduct business, you're living right among them in the same type of lifestyle. They're not fooled by it. They don't look at you and go, wow, man, I just wish I could be just like you because you're so godly. You go to church on Sundays, you quoted that verse to me. I saw your Facebook post and it, it had a godly verse right there. Wow, you're really a strong believer. No, what they do is they look at you and say, you're no different than me. You look just like I look. You act just like I act. You're doing the same stuff I'm doing. I don't care if you go to church. I don't care if you put some verses on your Facebook page or, you know, again, Instagram, whatever it is. I don't care what you say. You're living just like I am. You set up shop right in the same town in which I live. This is the way that I live my life. And you built, you built your house in the same place. You're living in the same way. It's a mistake. You know, the reason why is because when you start to settle in the world in that same kind of environment, it doesn't really matter what religious claims you make because your life choices reveal more about who you really are than what you say. It's what you're doing that matters. You may have the right words down. You may, you know, you may come to church and sing the songs and, you know, know what to say, but it, it what, who you really are is reflected in what you do. What you're doing, not just what you're saying. For instance, I did have a friend, and, and maybe why I'm harping on Facebook so much, is I had a friend that just really, as I was kind of thinking about this message in my mind, it was like the perfect example. It's a guy who, he puts some really bold things on Facebook when it comes to Jesus. Really bold things. You know, like, Jesus is the only way, you know, and I mean, he's just like, he's out there, and he's like, and then the very next post will be something just absolutely crude or, you know, clearly sinful that anybody who reads your Bible knows you shouldn't be doing these things and bragging about it. And I just think, what does it matter what you said on the previous post if the lifestyle that you live completely contradicts what you just said? Just because you built an altar in the midst of that lifestyle does not mean that you're, a, you know, that you're just a certified 
born-again believer that's living for Jesus. It's very hard to build an altar in that type of environment. You usually will be the one torn down. What about those who, you know, I again, I've seen it. Maybe those who pretend to be completely sold out for the Lord on Sunday, right after they partied it up on Saturday night with their friends and did some things that, that they know were wrong. Not because I told them they were wrong, not because we have a list of rules of what to be a proper Christian, but because there was some conviction in your heart as you were doing it. What does that say to those people? Are they saying, well, look at the altar, look at the altar. Oh, yeah, they're, they're the real deal. Or are they saying, you're no different than me. Jesus hasn't changed your life. You're, you're the same person I am. You're doing the same thing. You can't put a show up, put on a show for God doing occasional religious things if you want to dwell in Shechem. Because nobody's going to take the altar seriously. I didn't. As a non-believer, I didn't. If I had somebody that claimed to be a believer or they were now suddenly, you know, a Bible thumper and going to church. If they were dwelling with me in Shechem, I didn't take their faith serious at all. I looked at that and I was like, it, it just didn't matter. It, it was like the words didn't mean anything. I have a good friend who certainly was born again. His life was radically changed. I, I got to witness it firsthand. And then he kind of went back to the old life for a while. Started doing some things and living in such a way that he knew was wrong. Clearly in sin. Because of that, you know, when you get into that environment, what will happen is you may still come to church every once in a while and, and you'll tolerate it. But then the conviction will get to the point where it's like, you know what? I don't want to go. I don't want to hear it anymore because you don't, you don't want to deal with it. So he just stopped coming eventually. And he did. He was at work and uh, he shared this story with me. He's since come back to the Lord and really doing great things. But he goes, one of the most miserable experiences I had was he was at work and somebody who knew him as a believer, when he was really walking with the Lord solid and God was doing some amazing things in him and through him, they came to him at the shop and they were trying to tell him about some things that were going on and they wanted prayer. And he goes, Clint, I couldn't pray with him. I said, man, that doesn't sound like you. What, what was the deal? He goes, I was so convicted over the way I was living that I felt absolutely disqualified. I felt like such a hypocrite. God brought this person to me because he desperately needed the Lord. And I was disqualified from serving him by my own heart, my own conviction. I felt condemned. I couldn't help him. And it was one of the worst feelings he had ever gone through. He goes, right then I knew I had to change. Couldn't live like that anymore because I knew the truth. I couldn't keep on living like a hypocrite. I couldn't continue to live one way and saying that I was something different. And he did. He turned his life around. And like I said, man, God has done some great things in his life. But when you try to dwell in Shechem, nobody's fooled. Nobody's fooled. They see right through it. This morning I was reminded of that as well. Uh, I went to buy those roses. I went to a very nice place called Safeway. 
chance to get some flowers for you guys. Okay? And because my wife, I'm sorry, my wife usually buys things for Mother's Day and has stuff ready, but because she's been down, she hasn't been able to. And I told her I would do something really nice, so please just brag about that, all kinds of stuff, right? <laughs> but anyway, she knew that I'd come up with the best I could. There's chocolate and flowers. I hope they like them. Okay? Um, as I went there, I was shocked. This was 7 o'clock in the morning. You would not believe the amount of men that I saw at Safeway at 7 o'clock in the morning this morning. It was utterly insane. I was just shocked as I was watching this. I mean, it was packed. Everybody's going for things. There was this, you know, it was just funny. And again, this thought's in my head, you know, and I'm like, man, they're purchasing them for their moms, maybe their wives. I wonder if this is the nicest thing they've done in a long time. I wonder, I wonder if their lifestyle is different than how they're portraying themselves right now. See, because they're, they're going to buy some flowers for them, and it's going to look real nice. Maybe they even buy the vase, and that's like another 30 bucks or something. That's like, oh, I spent big for you, you know? And they say, here you go. Here's some beautiful flowers from my wonderful wife or my mother, and oh, you're just so awesome. And then the rest of the week or months or years, you don't treat her that way. See, what good, is, what good is the flowers to that person if they look at that and they're like, oh, it's nice that you bought me flowers, but look at the way you've treated me for the last year. It's hard for that person to accept that because they know who you really were before your grand statement, right? That's why as believers we have to be careful. Who are we really? What has Christ really done in us? And is our, is our testimony and the grand statements that we make consistent with our lifestyle, the way that we live? Or does the world look at it and say, you just built an altar, but you're living right like I am. It's no big deal. It's not real. I don't see any power in that because you're just like me. So what are we supposed to do as Christians? Are we supposed to live like monks or the Amish? You know, are we supposed to completely segregate ourselves away from every non-believer in this world, only associating with believers at religious gatherings, shunning the heathen and the darkness in which they dwell? Is that the way we're supposed to live as believers? Is that how it's supposed to be? Because I, gotta, I can't build my house in Shechem, so I need to be in Bethel, and there's only believers in Bethel. That's where I need to be. I need to be in this bubble, and everything's controlled, and that's how God wants me to be, because I don't want to be up there with those heathens, right? Now, in this case, he was wrong, because God told him to go to Bethel. It wasn't a sin that he just chose Shechem. It was a sin that God told him to go to Bethel. And he didn't do it. And he went somewhere else that was a poor substitute. That's what was wrong. But, you know, you have that extreme where you have some people who feel like, I want nothing to do with anybody who is not a Christian. Are we supposed to be like the other ones, like Jacob, who know the truth, but they only are displaying a facade of religious piety while trying to make our own home with those who have completely rejected God? That's how we're going to live our life. Are we supposed to be like that either? We're not supposed to be like either of those two. See, Jesus, it's a familiar passage, but John chapter 17, 
14 through 19, it says, he gives the answer to this question. It says, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. That is the standard. That is the solution. Some of you are familiar with this and you would think of it as maybe the in but not of the world passage. But that's the balance. God has sent us into the world. That's why you're still here after you're born again and you're not just beamed up. You're born again to reach other people who desperately need to come out of that same lifestyle, that same pattern of sin. Alienated from God, enemies of His, as the, word, as the Word clearly tells us. God came to save us from those things, but He also leaves us here so that we can extend a hand to those who need that same truth, and we become His ambassadors, we become His witnesses. We become the people who say, this is what God has done in my life. I understand the lifestyle you live, because I also lived a similar lifestyle, but you can get out of that. You don't have to live in bondage like that forever. There's freedom available to you, and it's simply following Christ. We're supposed to be in the situation where we have contact with those who are not saved. But in doing so, we're never meant to settle in Sukkoth. We're never supposed to be there. We're not supposed to set up our homes there. We're not supposed to buy land and dwell in Shechem. That's not where God wants us to be. Think of it like this. You know, when you think about like Ebola and those things that happen, there's people when, when that happened in the content, the content of Africa, remember recently, they had doctors from all over the world coming into that area, right? Because there's people who are dying from this disease. So they bring people from outside of that circumstance to come in and help. They're sent into the places where people are dying, but they're never to take off their medical protective gear and start dwelling among them in the midst of their own disease. They're in that situation, but they're not supposed to be absorbed by that situation. They understand that this particular environment can be dangerous for me if I choose to take off my protective gear and choose to dwell with them in it. What happens to that person? They also get infected with the same disease, which leads to death. So they're in the world, but they're not of the world. They're in it, but they're not saturated by it. That's the balance as a believer. For that doctor, man, if, if they did make that thing, if they're like, hey, I'm all in, I'm not wearing my protective gear, and I'm going to come in, and I'm going to live, and I'm going to be right in the midst of what's going on in their life, everyone would lose, right? Because the person who was sent to them to help them out of it has now become sick themselves. And now they need someone to help them, instead of being the one that God sent to help them. That's why we have to be careful how we live. You were sent to extend a hand and lift them out of those things. To point them to the Lord anyways, so that he could help them out of it. You were supposed to be the helping hand. You aren't supposed to be just like them. 
You weren't supposed to be infected with the same things they're infected with because you used to live that lifestyle, but that's not who you are now in Christ. You were sent to help. As Christians, we have relationships with those who don't know the Lord. But we don't build an occasional altar and make that our dwelling place. We don't do that. We don't live in that environment. That's not where we live our life. That's not who we are anymore. Yes, we need to build altars, boldly proclaiming that Jesus is our Lord, unashamedly. But we never settle down and build our lives in a place that leads to death, in a place that God never told us to go. So my question is, have you built a very real altar in a very wrong place? Have you built a very real altar in a very wrong place? Your altar is real. You want to magnify God. You want people to know that you're a believer. But the way that you're living amongst them is disqualifying the message of the altar. We can't live like that. If so, the map's gone. But you need to remember, he was Peniel, a top right. He ended up over here, top left, and Shechem. Head down to Bethel. Bethel is the place where he initially built the altar. The first time which he had real correspondence with the Lord, where the Lord really touched his life and became very real to him, it was in Bethel, and that's where God told him to get back to. Get back to that place. And as we sang that song this morning, the first one that we, you know, that we sang, when your heart runs dry. If you're in that place where your heart is dry because you've been living in some sort of circumstance that it's stealing the joy and the closeness that you had with the Lord, head back to where God wants you to be. Whatever that Bethel is, whatever it is, get back to that place that you knew God wanted you to be in the way that you live and the way that you conduct yourself. Go back to that place and stop wasting your resources in a lifestyle that, that's just draining that joy, stealing it. Don't allow the enemy to do that to you. Don't let that become a distraction. There's a lot of people to reach. Get to the place that the Lord wants you to be. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the example that you give to us in it. I thank you that, you know, man, I'm grateful that my life is not included in your word because I'm sure I would have worse examples than even Jacob. Father, I, I pray, I thank you that you saved those mistakes for us. You saved those things to show us so that we could learn from it. I thank you that your Holy Spirit can take these kind of passages and you can cut them right to our heart so that there's conviction and your Holy Spirit nudging us and telling us you have to make some changes. You're doing this. I thank you because you're so good at that. You're so faithful to correct us when we need it. But you're also faithful to encourage us, to strengthen us, to get us pointed in the right direction once again. And I would ask that, Lord, for anyone who hears this message, whether those in the seats today or those who will listen to it later, would you please nudge them back on the right path? Set up the altar in the right place, the place that you told them to. Lord, would you please just bring this passage to remembrance if ever we start erring in these ways? 
Woo us back to that right place once again. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.